The word why, what a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key, a key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world, those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. We are spending time today with Jerry Siegel. You may not know him, but you sure know and recognize the buildings that have had his fingerprints all over them. I'm really excited about this conversation. I've been blessed to speak with some incredible people uh, over the last decade, and I can't think of somebody else that has been as interesting, Jerry, as you. So I say that <laughs> as oh, a compliment. Oh, wait, you might say differently. <laughs> I might, huh? People will know and, and they get a sense of, of you and your connection, obviously, to the Twin Towers and Madison Square Garden and these iconic buildings and the stories, both good, bad, and, and understatement. I want to get to know the man, Jerry, and your energy for life. And I want to go back to Brighton Beach. Are you ready for this? Yeah, paint the picture. I want to know what Brighton Beach was when you were a young boy. Um, Number one, as you know, I'm, I was born in 1943. Okay? I lived in a four-story tenement walk-up. Do you know what air conditioning was? It was when you put your mattress on the fire escape. That's Brighton Beach. And, uh, and it, is a little, it was a great community. Describe what it was like to live in a tenement, because I think in 2022, that's, you know, that's... Tenement, what is that, right? Yeah, what, what, that's an era gone by, right? We may have seen that in, in movies, or, or how do we understand, like, what's the flavor of that outside of the air conditioning component? Like, what are the families like? What's the culture like, the community, the engagement with others uh, that were a part of that? That's a good question. If you didn't have heat in the winter, you banged on the pipes. When I was 15, the older people had these wire rim shopping carts and this was a struggle to get them up. So I decided that watching these old ladies do that, I'm going to go over to the six grocery stores in Brighton Beach and say, look, I'm going to deliver the bags and you pay me per bag and my guys will get a tip. Worked out fine. I got 10 cents a bag. Are you ready? And my yeah. guys, and my guys got a tip for 10 cents. I wound up having close to 32 guys working for me at 15. Does that, does that answer your story? It does. But so where does that come from? Not every kid has that. No. So where was this? Was this early on? Talk about your, your parents. Talk about the sort of the family structure. We're first-generation Americans. My father came from Palestine. My mother came from Poland. They made hats in the Lower East Side in the sweatshops. Okay? They had no money at all. I became interested in changing what I was doing. My typical thing, I had a pair of Converse sneakers. I remember what it was. I had a hole in it, and I showed it to my father. And he says, put a piece of cardboard in your sneaker. And that's when I changed that one story it really affected me, to put a piece of cardboard in the sneaker to cover the hole. What was the message to you? Go, go get, a, get a job and do something at 15. So I got this job, delivering groceries at 15 years old. Did you think of yourself as, I always think it's interesting for young people and kids, I think they just know what they know. Their environment is their environment. They don't think about rich and poor or if they have resources or not. How did you think of yourself as a kid? We never thought we were poor, even though... Dinner for every, almost every night consisted of scrambled eggs and toast. So, but we, you didn't know you were Almost poor. every night. Yeah, almost every night, except the Shabbos on Friday. Then you would have fish or meat. Yeah. Because there was no money. So it was, and you, but you still didn't think that you were poor because at least you had food on your plate, whether it was just scrambled eggs and toast. 
So it was really very interesting. Didn't realize any of that it really changed until I got older and, and did what I was doing. And you had siblings, correct? Yeah, a brother who passed away from cancer, smoking a pack of cigarettes a day at 58 years old, very young. So I continue on. And then, as you know, you spoke to my wife. I'm sure she told you, you know, Ellen and I met when we were 15 years old. Yeah, it sounds like 15 was quite a year for you. <laughs> you want to see the picture? <laughs> yeah, if you've got it. I actually have the picture when we met at 15. I want to talk about, if I want to stay in Brighton Beach for a few more moments, let's, let's talk about kids. Let's talk about the world that we live in today, Jerry. Um, sadly, it, it does feel like we're going backwards to some degree. We are, you know, we're banning books. We're, you know, I mean, there are all kinds of things that are going on that I don't think people would have thought in 2022 we would be doing. And it has us looking at those in our classrooms and our communities that may look different than than we do. And I think it's birthing some interesting conversations, or at least I hope that it is. Talk about what it was like in Brighton Beach in the in the mid, you know, 40s and 50s and talking about cultures and communities and neighborhoods where cultures were defining communities. You know, it's very interesting. Everybody was friends. You know, you played ball together, you played stickball, and you, and you did everything together. And it was very, very different. There was no animosity between anybody. And, and even though culturally we were all a very mixed neighborhood, but yet all of us got together and been together. So it really, and I, I really miss a lot of that. I miss seeing that even with my own grandchildren now. But uh, it's just not the same. I mean, we were really a close, all of us. It's amazing. What is Brighton Beach like today? For you, uh, you ready? It's a Russian community. You got all the Russian. You had the Russian signs, and you got the Russian pushcarts on the street. So it's very interesting how it changed. It was a Jewish and Italian neighborhood. So it was either the pizza or the fish or the hot dogs or the knishes. But now it's all the Russian food, and it's it's so different. But yet you can't buy an apartment under a million dollars there now. <laughs> and don't forget. <laughs> I was, and then those days, I was fifty yards from the ocean. So you were fifty yards from the ocean, right? So what was it? What was a young Jerry Siegel dreaming about looking out at the ocean at that stage? Obviously, you were building an empire, having 32 employees delivering groceries. Oh, no, not building an empire. So you're going to love this one. So two things that I did besides doing the groceries. I also, I, I made, had beach chairs. I would rent 30 beach chairs on the weekends on the beach <laughs> at 15. And I saw them in my friend's garage. So yeah, how did you get the money? So did you get the money from the groceries to buy the chairs? And I, then you, that's kind of how you. Now, 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 see, now you know what you're talking about. I'm getting it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go into business, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> you got the picture? Yeah, yeah I, I do. Yeah. I, I rented beach chairs on the weekend and then I did the groceries. I always, and the Converse sneakers affected me. The Converse sneakers. Think about that. A hole in my sneaker and my. Parents didn't have the money to get me another pair of sneakers. And my father said, put a piece of cardboard in your sneaker. And then and that's it. I said, I'm going to buy my own sneakers now. So basically, you take charge of your own life in that regard. Which is what I did. Yeah, totally. One of the toys that I like, like games I like, was it's a game called Lincoln Logs. You know what that was? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I got into Lincoln Logs big time, uh, building stuff, cabins and all that. And that really interested me in the construction business. That was my start. That was the start. Yeah, how did, how did the relationship with you and your dad change ever, you know, since that converse, you know, obviously they he's were, passed. Yeah, they, they were refugees and didn't make a difference. I was having a few bucks in my pocket. You know, I wasn't asking for money and uh, we just had a happy life. You know? Did you, con did you, were you expected to contribute what you were making to the family? No, 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 no. They had no interest in that at all. And they always want, their big interest was education and school. 
So that that says something about them. Yeah, yeah, no, it did. They really, and they cared about people, and they were charitable, uh, and did a lot of things as much as they could be. But um, you know, it, it was it's a different life. It's a life I try to lead now. So that's how I got interested in construction. Lincoln Logs. Lincoln Logs. Isn't that great? That is amazing. Yeah. I yeah. mean, how, what kids haven't? I mean, they still exist. I don't today. think any. I don't. That's a good question. I don't think anybody has it anymore. Oh, they do. You know, yeah, Lego. Got Lego. I don't know if you have. Lego yeah, you have anymore. Legos. You've got now. You know, electronics Lego. that Lego's are tied different. to it, right? Yeah. So okay, so you're 15. You you meet your wife. Obviously, you, you know, you, all these sort of changes are going on. The love of my life. <laughs> the love of your life. And if people could see your face, uh, it, it's. I think we could all aspire to that. Um, okay, so you're 15. You're getting a sense, or maybe a sensibility of yourself and what you can do. I mean, not that you're renting beach chairs means you're going to go. You know, I don't know, create an empire or anything like that. But I think a sense of confidence. Did you feel confidence? Growing in your ability to trust your gut on the things that you want to do and pursue? No, that's a very good point. I had a teacher in the sixth grade. Her name was Miss Puglisi, who said to Jerry, when you sneeze, God should only bless you with more brains. What does that tell you? You know, they left an image on me. Imagine that. That really affected my life. Hearing that. Yeah. I had, I had a hard time in school. You had yeah. a hard time. Hard time, yeah. What was difficult well, in school? I was not a good student. I had a hard time taking tests. And I, like I said, this teacher, Ms. Buglisi, said, no, you should only have more brains, okay? Which affected me, and yet I have 32 guys working for me. Think about that. Like something's uh, working. Yeah. So what happened is, is very interesting is that I went on to high school, went to Lincoln High School in Brooklyn, and I had a scholarship to play football for another small college. And the last game of the year, um, I dislocated my shoulder. And just, in those days, I just ripped up the piece of paper. Now you're in trouble. Now you need a job. So I decided because I like my Lincoln Logs so much that I'm going to go into the construction business. So I went to the first construction company that's the closest to the BMT subway in Brooklyn. And it was Tishman. So I went up there and I said, look, I'm looking for a job. Do you have any openings? I was 17 years old and I lied. I told him I was 18 because those days you had to be 18 to get a job. So he said, yeah, you know what? We still have an opening. We have an opening in the mail room. And I said, fine, $40 a week. So you're the classic mailroom story. They do exist. Yes. Oh, yeah. We have great mailrooms. <laughs> and I was good at it. I was so good. That they asked me to work on next job in six months was to work on a job site. So that was the beginning of my career with Tishman. Okay. But see, that's what's fascinating to me, right? Like how many young people have the confidence to be able to think and understand sort of the relative position in life and still see opportunity right and so you're there for any job at all you get in the mail room and it sounds like you're a happy at least productive worker enough that in six months they're putting you on a job site right i went to work for tishman in june 1960 so it tells you how old i'm gonna be 79 in two weeks all right i've been in the business 62 years so let me start back from that but i think it's important to truly understand this and so i went to work for tishman and that was when i was with them by about uh, a couple of years, and they said, Jerry, you, you're too good to be in the mirror. Why don't you go work on one of the job sites? And that's what I did, working in Silver Towers on West House and West Broadway. That doesn't mean anything to you. Um, and, and I worked my way up as a superintendent, and assistant superintendent, which that meant in those days, you got the coffee for everybody. Okay? And so I became the superintendent. So that Back to getting got, groceries, right? <laughs> yeah. Ah, that was good. Uh, 
at that point, um, then they asked me to go out to a job site at Madison Square Garden, which was the building called Two Pen Plaza Madison Square Garden, where the superintendent was there. I've now worked at Tishman a long time, and the guy had a heart attack, and my old boss, John Tishman, said, Jerry, can you take it over? I said, of course. You know, not a problem. So I take over the job, and I finish that. So I finished, it was, 19, yeah, 1968, I finished Two Pen Plaza and the Garden. And then my next assignment, they asked me, Jerry, how about going to New Orleans? Build the biggest building in the city of New Orleans. You get in this picture, right? Yeah. So I go to New Orleans. I do build the biggest building in the city of New Orleans <laughs> called 1010 Common. And I finished that. And then my next assignment, they said they wanted me to go back to Newark Airport and do Continental's Airline Terminal. And then something came up and they asked me, Jerry, I need you to go to the World Trade Center. And we'll make you in charge of all the interiors in the building, the building one which is the South Building. The South Tower, right? Yeah. So that's what I did. So I went there. And did you take – wouldn't you take your dad up there when it was still unfinished? Oh, yeah. Oh, wait. Now, now you're going – okay. <laughs> and if I, as, hey, it's my job to do a little bit of research here, right? <laughs> okay. So what happened, I took Pop around, and Pop would always look at me and says, you should be a plumber. And the reason you should be a plumber is that the toilets will always break. So I take Pop. To the World Trade Center. Job security, right? And he, and he says, oh, my God, he hits his head. Look at all these toilets. You know what you could be if you're a plumber? <laughs> he didn't understand it. And that, that was the whole thing. And we go back home to dinner with the family. And, and I said, Pops, so what do you think? He says, could you imagine if you were the plumber, what you would be doing? What was that like, like for you? I mean, to be, I, I would imagine, I mean, fathers and sons have unique relationships, and, right? He's these, these a refugee, you know. Different uh, times. Yeah, he couldn't even write his name. He used to write it with an X. So, but, but he meant well. And every penny he earned, he gave it to mom, buy food and stuff like that. So, you think he, I would imagine he was proud of you. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. No question about it. No question about it. So, I wanted them being in charge of the building, doing all the interiors and all that for the South Building. Did that well. And then I finished that. I think it must have been finished New Orleans 71. So, I finished World Trade Center 74. I was going to say 73, 74, right? Yeah, 74. Something. Right. And so they said to me, Jerry, we got a choice. Do you want to do Ren Center, which is the General Motors headquarters in Detroit? Oh, in Detroit. That's right. Yeah. Or you want to go to Washington or petitioner's office in Washington? I said, I want to go to Washington. So that's how, that's how I got to Washington. And I built the first building in Georgetown. I actually have, over the years now, built 13 buildings in Georgetown alone. Um, and... Uh, when I finished that in the end of 77, uh, they said the ne- next job for me was to go to build Epcot World for Disney. And then I realized, you're going to find this very interesting. I couldn't move because my kids, I got my oldest child, went to three kindergartens because of the moves and went around the country and stuff petition that I did. And I realized it was a problem. So I told my boss, I can't move. Uh, I want to stay in Washington. And he tells me, point blank. He says, Siegel? Everybody's replaceable. It's only the inconvenience caused at the time of replacement. You either get your last and down to Orlando or go find a job. So I came home that night, tears in my eyes. I look at my wife. I says, Helen, how much do we have? And she says, we have $2,214. We're going in business. And that's how we started. That's how you started? $2,214. We decided to go in business. And then you know the story about my wife. She becomes yeah. the first woman commercial real estate in America in 1977. Yeah. And she had her own company, too, as you know. 
So besides doing what she does now. Uh, and then, and the rest became history at then. And then when my youngest son was going to school, we noticed he had an issue. And, uh, so we took him to the, what they call the lab school and the Kingsbury Center to check out what, what's the issue. And then they came up with the thing that Michael has a, attention deficit dyslexia. I said, really? How about testing me? Guess what? You, you were struggling in the same areas. Exactly. Yeah. But, yet, but they didn't I, know that back then. No, in Brooklyn, are you kidding? You thought you were dumb. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's, and then what I learned was always to have a good secretary who could write everything out for me. And then we went into business and uh, the rest is history. Headroom is produced by Old Soul, a one-stop marketing agency that understands the power of brand and nuance. Reach out to my guy, Matt, at Old Soul and supercharge your brand and content strategy. That's Old Soul. Shoot Matt a note at aoldsoul.com. That's A-O-L-D-S-O-U-L.com. And now, back to our guest. What a fork in the road. We've got Epcot, right, which is right. iconic for people in that regard. Right. You make the tough decision as a as a dad, as a husband, right? You're going to pivot with a little over $2,000 in your pocket. Well, what happens then is that I did a very small job for a client. I built an office building, and the client asked me to come back and finish up some things at the building that he wanted done. And that's how I basically started. So what also happened when said I didn't have a laborer, I didn't have a project manager. So my car became my, the garbage. I would open my hood, put a wag thing in the back, and then I go look for a construction company's trailer and I dump all the stuff in their trailer. Wait, so I, I'm so confused. So, okay, what, what, were, what were you getting from their trailers? No, I was dumping the, the garbage from the job I was building for this guy because I had no money to pay somebody to come get it. To come get it. <laughs> yes. So I dumped it there. I guess what it makes me think about, Jerry, is this internal itch that you scratch. It seems like throughout your history around educating, being sort of aware. I mean, you know, the story about your, your dad talking about toilets, right, and, and, and the value of being a plumber. And yet then I'd love for you to share with the audience what you did when you heard – about schools in the D.C. area, I believe, where the bathrooms needed renovating. And you said, well, wait a minute, <laughs> let's fix this. And it's just it feels like there's that. Look, you're a businessman. You've been incredibly successful, but it hasn't been at the expense of others is, is what my experience of learning about you has been. And even in our exchanges over the last couple of weeks, talk about that story, because that says to me so much more about you than your accomplishments, that story of okay. the schools. But that's. I was always coming from this, this city, coming from this, I call it the streets of Brooklyn. You realize everything was very different. Oh, no, I, I get it. It was not the suburbs. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I read this in the Washington Post having breakfast, and it said the kids can't go to the bathrooms in the schools. The girls had to go from 9 to 11. The boys could go from 11 to 1. I said, that's got to be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So I go over to the first school, which happened to be in the area where I live, and I said to the principal, tell me, show me what's going on. She takes me in there and shows me, see, the toilets aren't fixed, nothing's working, I got good girls in one bathroom and all that. And I said, wait a second, this is ridiculous. So I go back to my office, I got a couple of my guys around, and I said, okay, we're going to make a difference. Let's go fix the school. So we call up a couple of our subcontractors, here's what's going to happen. We're going to fix the plumbing, we're going to fix the toilets, we're going to fix the lighting, and then we're going to take the kids and have them paint the, the, the stalls so they, they will stay. They're not getting in trouble. They'll be happy. So we started doing one school. Next thing you know, I'm doing 14 schools. Okay? Out of my pocket. I was going to ask you who paid for that. Out of my pocket. And then the school system in those days, 
when I got about to the 11th school, says, you're doing this, which is very nice. But now what are we going to do now? Because you're putting a high quality toilets in, high quality fixtures and all that. So I call up the manufacturer, <laughs> Oregon, and I says, hey, I got a problem. I take care of the schools. They said, it's a great idea. We'll send you the extras so everybody has enough supplies to fix all the bathrooms. It was, the, <laughs> it was a win-win for everybody. And, and the course was out of my pocket. Yes, it was. But I can but, see on your face just the pride from that project. Well, I believe in giving back. Number one, it's always been very important to me, uh, teaching young kids, uh, being a mentor. Um, uh, we did all kinds of things like that in, in Washington. And I still continue to this day to do that. What, what, let's, tell me what drives you, right? Because there are a lot of people that are in your shoes, you know, on the verge of, of being 79 and, dare I say, approaching 80, <laughs> respectfully. That would say, golf. well, good. I hope at, you got a good 79. golf game. <laughs> 79. Do you believe that? Um, I had my 11th, I had my 11th lesson today. Oh, you did? I said, sure. I mean, Straight from the golf course. <laughs> yes. That's why we're, that's why we're more than a half. I like it. I like it. Um, what, what keeps you excited when you get up in the morning? What, what are the things that now, given what you've accomplished, that give you the kind of energy that even when you're tired, you say, I just, I got to write this down. I got to call somebody. I need to think about this. Well, it's still, you know, it's very interesting. Give you an idea. Go back about 15 years ago. There was four of us in the contracting business. I said, you know, having a problem getting skilled labor. So I said, and it was in the city. Those days, Washington was very difficult to be work, getting workers from. So we said, one of there's no vocational schools in Washington, D.C. So why don't we set up a school and teach the kids from the inner city how to be carpenters, electricians, and plumbers? We're still doing it today. Averaging 225 kids who are still in today. The, oh, absolutely. And guess who funds it? The four of us. The four of you. Yeah. Teaching these kids. And so we've been doing it 15 years now. Yeah, how many it's kids good. have gone through the program? Do you know? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's up to 200 a year now, 225 roughly. I was in the early years, it was about 15, 16. Um, so I have to figure it out for you. I, I'd say maybe a couple thousand, 2000. Yeah, easily. And then you hire the kids also, put them on your jobs. So you're taking kids from the inner city, teach them how to build a house. And it's the best thing that ever happened to them in their life. It sounds like more people need to know about that program. Well, the, the city knows about it, and uh, they might do something eventually about it. And Washington's very good about this stuff. So, and, But like I said, it's a vocational school system they don't have. Take me back, because I think it's interesting, um, and I'll let you bring up personalities if you want. But take me back to the construction business or the scene, maybe is a better way to put it, the construction scene in the 70s and 80s in New York. Okay. Number one, I'm a guy from Brooklyn. So I had no fear. Okay. No fear. I wasn't affected by that scene. So I had no, never had a problem. Was uh, it as competitive as we've seen? Obviously, Trump being there, we New York, New York is very competitive. No question about it. Any clashes or exchanges or, or projects with Trump and, and what we see in the press, was it as accurate? No, you know, what you see in the press is definitely accurate. And I never would work for Trump anyway, but I was already out of New York when he came around. So I was, I know I left New York in 74. But the scene was very difficult in those days, uh, dealing with the big boys. And, uh, but I had no, no fear. So. You had no fear? No, I, I'm from Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I do, fear. I would be remiss if I didn't ask about it only because Uh-oh. I think your perspective is, I mean, there's only one of you in this regard. And, and obviously there was a story in the Washington Post, you know, days after 
Right. How, how, after so many years, have you reconciled the tragedy of 9-11? At the end of the day, we're talking just beams and, you know, like construction materials that put together a building, but a building has stories. A building is uh, the platform to take a dad up 110 stories to look out, right? In retrospect, how do you understand it? How do you think about it in the power of what you do um, and what it means to people and lives that grow in their experiences within these buildings? That's a very good point. Uh, number one, I spent, as you know, I told you, five years there. Okay? So uh, uh, the tears in my eyes took me two and a half years to see the buildings, the site, not the buildings. But the other thing that happened, too, my closest friend became Larry Silverstein. You know who that is, don't you? Larry's the man who bought the buildings six weeks before they went down. And uh, Larry and I have, have been friends ever since. And so we know a lot about it. We're tied in together. We see each other all the time. And so it's a personal joy to me to see what's going on down there. Uh, and, and But it's also a horrible thing to see all the people that died and everything that happened, you know. And it's it's sad. And it's, it does affect my life tremendously uh, going downtown. So To this that, day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I've been very fortunate besides for that building. I never had any other buildings that had an issue. So I've been very fortunate. As you know, we built other places, right? We built Absolutely. 5,000 houses in, in Israel, a couple thousand, in fact. 5,000 <laughs> houses in Israel. All right. There are other things that I did that you, you never talk about. Okay, no, so I know. I mean, you built so many. You, you, that's like I said at the opening. You've had your fingerprints on so many structures of all shapes and sizes. Different things. So when I went to New Orleans, when I went to my own business, the owner from New Orleans asked me to please come down and open an office to take care of his buildings. Okay. Then... Uh, I got a call from uh, the Middle East, from um, the Israeli office. Jerry, we need you to come to Israel. And I said, what are you talking about? I thought somebody was pulling my leg. He says, no, what's happening is the Russians are letting out all the Jewish people. We don't build enough houses. So I, <laughs> you're laughing. So guess where I went? Wow. I went over to Israel, built 5,000 houses. They never used drywall. You know what drywall is, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah they never used drywall. Everything's built with cinder block and stucco. I brought drywall to Israel. And then from there, I got a call from Oleg, Oleg Rosenberg in Siberia and on Belovo, which is the city south of uh, Novozaburs, which is the capital of Siberia. He says, my mother told me about you. You're going to love this story. <laughs> I said, what do you mean, mother? My mother read about you in the newspapers in the Jerusalem Post that you built houses in Israel. I need you to come to Russia to build houses for us. I says, okay. I said, Oleg, how are you going to build the houses? He says, we have the money. I said, okay, here's what you do, Oleg. Send me $100,000. I got to remember, this is the 70s. $100,000 was big time money. Might as well have been a million dollars at that time. Right, exactly. So <laughs> you're going to love the story. I got a call from my bank. Hey, Jerry, we got $100,000 that came from Nova Zabersk. You know what that is? I said, oh, shit. Now I got to do something. Now you got to do something. <laughs> so what happens with myself and, uh, and uh, my president at the time, um, we hired an architect called Shalom Branis, who's a great friend. And we said, we got to come up with a, a frost-proof type of house. So we went to Ryland Homes, and we worked out a house that we, <laughs> you're laughing, that we came up with, that every house went on two containers. Now, picture the scene. They went from two containers in Baltimore to Leningrad. It wasn't St. Petersburg. And from Leningrad or St. Petersburg, they went in this Trans-Siberian Express to Belovo. 
And you only could build because of the frost line there. You only could build from May into October. And so we started making the houses and prefabricated the houses in, in Maryland and sending them to Israel. Oh, to Russia, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's How's amazing. That? So then the other offices, well, I told you Philadelphia and, and, uh, I had a big office in Philadelphia a long time and also in, uh, in Baltimore. And I, I stepped back about 19 years ago and said, this is crazy. I'm just running all over. Yeah, you, 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 I don't think you step back. I mean, you step back maybe officially, but I don't get the sense that uh, stepping back for you is what we would all consider stepping back. Well, Let me ask you this, Jerry. What, <laughs> of all the structures, do you think there will be one that, whether it's a story or it, it embodies something about you, your life, your upbringing, you know, I, I don't think it has to be something like the South Tower or Madison Square Garden, to your point, or bringing drywall to Israel, right? Like, is there one that you just say – Gosh, that's my favorite. That's the, or, or it means the most. There's, a, there's actually more than one that means the most. One is definitely the World Trade Center. No question about it. Uh, number two is I went to I went to night school at NYU for nine and a half years. <laughs> okay, to get my degree. Now, that was kind of tough. And I built um, the three buildings that West House and West Broadway uh, called Silver Towers. I was a superintendent over there. And then I built the office, uh, the building. First building out of Washington, NYU, in, I mean, first building out of New York, NYU, in Washington. That's one of the schools we have. They built that, that campus. And, and why do, why do those two in particular? Because I went to night school at NYU, and, and, and I, NYU meant so much to me because they took me in. In those days, it was, I think it was $175 of credit or something to go to school. And they took a kid who had terrible marks, who, who really did terrible in school, and I went to school there. So they believed in you. Oh yeah. What do actually, you th- why do you think they accepted you? Was it was it an interview? Was it the personality? Like, no, what was it about you? No, they, they, I think they just being in New York and then those days. I think they just accepted a lot of kids to go to high school because that was that kind of community. And then I was picked as the distinguished. I think you probably don't know this either. Distinguished uh, alumni uh, from Madison, uh, from NYU. And you gave the commencement speech, didn't you? Yes. Oh, so you do know that? Okay. I started off with "Welcome to the home that Jerry built." All right, so are. I was. Hey, are you proud of me? I am proud of you, Jerry. <laughs> I feel like I've known you for my whole life here. All right, so let, let's close with did this. I, wait, did I tell you about the project in Sacramento that I did also? No, I didn't know you were out west. Look, they <laughs> yeah. let you. They let you out west, Jerry. That's, this is the story. <laughs> they let me pass the Hudson. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So another one of my close friends uh, was doing a project out in. Uh, Sacramento got in trouble when they asked me to go up there, sit up in my office. So we did that also. So talk with me a little bit. You, you touched on it briefly, and I want to be respectful, but I would imagine Uh-oh. people that are listening would have caught this as well. You mentioned your friendship with Larry, uh, who bought the Trade Center six weeks before um, 9-11. I can't fathom what that friendship has been like over the years. And if it's the kind of friendship where you don't have to express anything verbally, that it's in the eyes, it's in the shoulders, it's you just can't describe it. But there's a tone and texture to it that is just unique to you and Larry. And I'm wondering if you could describe is it is it is it shared? You know, are you are you sharing a glass of wine together? Uh, You know, are you having a cup of coffee? Like, what's that friendship like? Because I would imagine you lean into one another or you have over the years, and that's been very reaffirming or affirming, I should say. 
Well, number one, you have to understand that Larry and his wife, Clara, and Ellen and I are very close. And, and since you know what my wife does, so the conversations are go from construction to medical to everything you could possibly think of. It's a very close relationship. And it just, you know, and we have names for each other. He's called Larala. I'm called Gerala. <laughs> so we're very close. And that's quite a man. He's 92 years old. Look what he's still doing. That's amazing. Tell me about, I would imagine there's a great sense of pride. I know that you were appointed by President Clinton to the United States Holocaust Memorial Council. So tell me about that experience and being appointed by President Clinton and what that means to you and your family. It means a lot because we lost a lot of people during the Holocaust. My family and I had that opportunity and got a presidential appointment with being in the Holocaust Museum. Uh, it was phenomenal. I was very involved. I wound up doing a lot of the exhibit space. And then we built the special building for scholars uh, outside of Washington, which is another big building. They asked me to take it over and just run that also. And they wouldn't let me resign. My term was up, but it's still, I'm still on there. I'm emeritus, and I'm still on the board now going on 29 years. So it's very important to me because I've seen what happened to families, people, people around the world. Look what's going on in, uh, across the world now. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, and we're seeing the same exact stuff happening. And, and the happen in this world today is, is terrible. I wish I was younger again. I'd go, go in the army and join the army. I'm being serious. So I was very lucky. And was the information I've seen and what, what we've done at the Holocaust Museum. Is, it's the most credible museum you ever see. It really is. Not just because I was involved with it and still am. And then I built a building for the research and scholars. Also, that's another called the Chappelle Center. That's another building I built for them. So it was my pleasure. And it was really, I used to get involved with Ellie Wiesel. I mean, just some of the people I met and, and listened to the stories. It's, it's really it's incredible when you hear all this stuff. And the survivors, what they've done. It's amazing what the survivors from the Holocaust have done. Most of them have passed away because of age. But uh, really, it's, it's an incredible story. You're bringing tears to my eyes. I'm being serious. Look, it's important. I think, you know, you brought it up with what's going on in Ukraine. And I think this is the power. This is this is the power of story on display that someone could be listening to our discussion now that is either, you know, in the prime of their career, a young person, an educator, a parent that says, you know what, maybe I could be doing more or maybe they want to learn more about history or sort of why things operate. Why does the clock work the way that it does? Right. Let's open up that watch in yeah. that regard. And I think you're a fantastic um, guide. Um, in the story of, of your life. And I think we can learn a lot from that. Let's close with this, Jerry. What do you think the lesson is? There are so many young people. I recently spoke to students at a boarding school in Switzerland, American students, and everything about them was about experiencing, embracing cultural diversity, entrepreneurship, right. like collaborating. I, it just was emanating from their their discussion. And I'm wondering what the lesson is about your life. Your life is far from over. You got a lot going on. What is the lesson for a young person thinking about what they can accomplish, what they can envision and or hope, you know, the converse that's got a hole in it? You know, how do we think about that today? You know, I'm going to be simple. Get your dream. This is your dream. Go after it. Don't stop. Make it happen. And it will happen. The average person doesn't do that. The average person should have been this or that. Do it. And you will really be a better person. And that was very interesting because when I got that award at NYU at Mass Square Garden, as I said, welcome to the house that Jerry built to 17,000 kids. That was very rewarding. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom, where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. 
I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom.